Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 24, the closing chapter to another amazing season of shivery-inducing stories. But don't worry, I'll be back next week for the start of Season 8 with another 24 episodes chock-full of frightening yarns to keep you up all night long. As always, I'm your host, Otis Gyre, and in tonight's season finale, I'll be performing four spine-chilling tales for you, all of them from author Michael Landry, 
perhaps better known in the creepypasta community as Shadow Swimmers 77, about paranormal pursuit, deadly detours, vicious vengeance, and not-so-mirthful myths. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. (laughs) Our first tale tonight from Michael Landry is a brand new tale and debuting on our program here tonight. In it, we'll meet a gentleman recounting a tale from his youth in which he decided to take the path less traveled, literally, and how sometimes those things we meet along the trail might just follow us home. Without further ado, I present to you, Faye Hollow. I was but a boy when I first discovered the grove in the wood, or perhaps when it discovered me. I came across the path leading to it down from my grandparents' house, where I would often visit in the summer months, wild and free from the responsibilities of school. At perhaps ten years of age, While whiling the days away in the simple pleasure of fresh air and sunshine, I stumbled upon the strange dirt path running through the forest, somehow sinister and inviting all at once. I recall the particular feeling of dreadful excitement I first had when I found the tree-lined trail, unpaved but well-worn by the passage of many small feet over a very long time. It curled and swayed this way and that, not appearing to obey any logic or whim, the twists and turns of its passage, taking it through swaths of deep shadow, over fallen trees and across babbling brooks. I had to follow it, of course, even though I knew that there was something darkly magical about the road I trod. I had played in the woods many times before that, and though I was not the best natural pathfinder, I knew this trailhead somehow never before lay where it did now. Still, a puzzle so mysterious at this, uh, my natural boyish curiosity was simply too powerful for my inherent caution to overcome. I don't know how long I followed the path, Time and reality seemed to enter into a kind of waking dream as I traveled along, and as I continued, the sun gave way to sparkling moonlight visible through the leaf-lined branches of the trees spreading wide above, stars foreign and unknown to me, twinkling brightly with strange, eldritch light. Despite the oddity of my journey and the expectant terror that should have beset me from being alone in a place that I was wholly unfamiliar with, all that I felt was a sense of calm and belonging. The barest tinkling, silver scraps of music reached my ears as I walked, so faint that they could almost be taken as my imagination. But the strains were so cheerful and inviting 
that any possible thoughts of discontinuing my journey were rapidly driven from my mind. The farther I got along the path, the closer I got to the music. The quicker my steps became, my feet slapping against the dirt in time with the rapidly increasing beat of my heart as it thundered within my chest. I was forced to pause for a moment when, from the corner of my eye, I spotted a strange glint of moonlight sharply reflecting from the inside of a hollowed-out portion of a tree just off the path. I faltered, unable to decide between continuing on toward the betwitching music and investigating this newly discovered phenomenon, before ultimately choosing to pursue the latter. Surely the music would wait for me just a moment. Reaching into the tree, my fingers felt the cold smoothness of carved metal. I retrieved the object from within and found it was a sort of pendant strung upon a leather thong and inlaid in silver, its center stone encircled by an alien but beautiful script that was unknown to me. Most strangely, the gem itself softly glowed seemingly by means of its own power. As I studied my newfound treasure, I was shocked to discover that my feet, apparently of their own accord, had continued to guide me along the path, again traveling toward the haunting music that still beckoned me onward. Regaining conscious control of my passage, slightly shaken by my autoambulation, despite the reassuring lilt of the music, I slipped the pendant into my pocket and cautiously proceeded, exhilarant and nervous to discover what might lie at the end of the forest path. At last, the way passed through a high wooden archway before opening into a large clearing, perhaps one hundred yards in diameter that, to my wonder, appeared to be occupied by a fantastic carnival. I continued walking, proceeding down the midway, running through the center of the grove, lined on either side by colorful booths decorated with garish paints and sparkling lights that offered games of chance and all manner of delightful confections. Dozens of other children ran about me, alone and in packs of two, three, or more, all squealing in glee. Each of the individual booths was appealing in its own right. The gaming stands offered great variety, from ring tosses to whack-a-mole, and each bore the promise of enormous stuffed animals as prizes, their features so well-crafted as to seem wholly lifelike. The food stands advertised the most sumptuous of treats, apples fairly dripping with caramel, blue and pink cotton candy handed out in huge clouds atop paper cones, and foot-long hot dogs piled high with molten cheese and chili. Each of the offerings seemed so incredibly perfect that the thought of choosing one over the other proved overwhelming. So, instead, I simply continued to walk along and marvel again at each newly revealed sight. The music that had drawn me along the path continued here unabated, saturating the air but somehow simultaneously coming from nowhere. Reaching the center of the clearing... I found that the midway reached a sort of hub, with two other paths combining to create a Y, dividing the fairgrounds into three roughly equal parts. 
Each of the paths was lined with booths similar to the one I had already traversed, and on further inspection, each section of the fairgrounds played host to a different attraction. In one was a roller coaster, its first hill taller than the surrounding trees, the train roaring at terrific speeds along the track as the riders screeched in delight. In another rose a great Ferris wheel, lights flickering in sequence along its many arms, and in the final third, directly ahead, and serving as a focal point and apex to the entire park, stood an enormous haunted house attraction, its exterior covered in animatronic ghosts and ghouls. The center hub, where I was now standing, was occupied by two distinct features— an enormous fountain topped by a statue of three children at play, and a ticket booth. I looked at the fountain. Streams of water poured from the statue children's mouths. Their lips split into grins so wide that it made me feel slightly uncomfortable. Hundreds of coins lay in the bottom of the fountain, glistening in the moonlight pouring down from above. Looking up, I saw the pale full moon shone brightly, the upper expanse of sky now devoid of tree branches. I felt for sure that the moon was the closest I'd ever seen it, fully two or three times larger than it had ever been before. The shock I felt when the imposed face typically called the man in the moon turned and gave me a fully realized wink and grin was only slightly greater than when I realized the celestial body possessed far more feminine features than I could have ever before imagined. Beautiful, isn't she? Don't you agree with me? I jumped in surprise as a piping voice spoke from directly behind me. Turning, I found myself confronted with a strange creature, perhaps two feet in height. The being was dressed all in green, from its pants and coat to a little hat on its head, and its ears were tapered to points at their ends. All told, it resembled nothing so much as a classic elf from the fairy tales my grandparents would read to me before I fell asleep every night. Yes, she certainly is, I replied politely, taught through route practice and the switch that one should always behave properly when confronted with new acquaintances. I'm Trevor. Please, sir, could you tell me where I am? I reached down and offered my hand to shake. The creature giggled but did not move to take my hand. Oh, so polite, calling Binkle, sir. But that's not necessary. No, my word. Why is Master Trevor not having his fun, as that, in Fay Hollow, is what all children have done? Fay Hollow? Is that the name of this place? The strangely speaking thing called Binkle nodded animatedly. Yes, yes, Fay Hollow is where all children come for fun, and when it's done, they're off to run. Now get your tickets, Master Trevor, so you can have fun too. Hurry now, before the night is through. The diminutive creature turned and skipped off down the path to the left. I stood bemused, unsure of how to proceed. I turned my attention to the ticket booth, its exterior stripped with inviting bands of red and white, the window manned by another being that could have been Binkle's twin. 
I approached the counter and began to rummage in my pockets. I'd like some tickets, please, sir. I'm afraid as I hadn't been intending on coming to your fair, I don't have much money on me. Oh, never fear, Master Trevor, dear. Tickets here for children are free. Have as many as you please. The little being held out a handful of red and purple pull tickets toward me. With my left hand, I reached to take the offered slips, but in the moment before my finger would have touched them, my other hand, still in my pocket, brushed the amulet I discovered in the hollow tree along the path just minutes ago. With that contact, I received the biggest shock of the evening thus far, as a sort of wave shimmered across the entire tableau of the fairgrounds, and a frog seemed to dissipate before my eyes. I flinched, a knot of dread instantaneously forming itself in the center of my gut. The red and white striped ticket stand was gone, instead replaced by a blocky, eight-foot-tall creature like living stone. The window, as I had seen it, was now revealed to be the cavernous mouth of the creature, its upper and lower ridges lined with large, sharp-looking teeth encrusted with flakes of dark reddish-brown, a slimily dripping tongue tipped with tiny yellow spines exuding an oozing green mucus extended, occupying the very space wherein the elf had been offering my tickets. The fountain behind it was still there, but the smiling children upon it I'd seen as statues were instead corpses, the liquid springing from their mouths not clear water, but the red scarlet of fresh blood. The silvery music that had drawn me to the grove was also still present, but instead of a whimsical inviting tune, it was a screeching cacophony sounding nothing so much as fingernails scratched along a chalkboard. Stumbling back, the hand of my pocket lost contact with the pendant, and instantly the booth, fountain, and music illusion snapped back into place. The elf in the window smiling saccharine sweet as it reached towards me, arms still extended. I fumbled to try to make words in my mouth, but my tongue felt swollen and unwieldy behind my lips. At last I managed to gasp out, I think I'll look around a bit more before I get my tickets, sir. I don't want to rush into things. With an incredible effort of will, I turned back the way I came, terrified that the thing might simply decide to reach out and snatch me with that horrific prehensile appendage and pull me bodily into its disgusting maw. But not wanting to see the tears that had sprung to my eyes and begun to slide down my cheeks. As slowly and with as much control as I was able, I retraced my path down the midway in the direction I had entered, moving one shaky step after another back toward the entrance to the fairgrounds. A terrible thought crossed my mind, and after a moment's deliberation, I hesitantly gripped the amulet in my pocket once more. Again the illusion fell away, and to my growing panic, I realized it was not merely the ticket booth that hid a darker and more horrific countenance, but rather the entire landscape and its occupants that were camouflaged behind a glamour of childish beauty. The midway booths alone were enough to give me nightmares for the rest of my life. My cleared perception now saw them as they were, 
Still games and eateries, to be sure, but nothing as innocently joyous as what I had first witnessed. The dart toss had a boy pinned to the wall, each projectile impacting with a sickening thud and a scream of pain from the tortured target. Similarly, at the whack-a-mole station, giggling children wielding sledgehammers pounded away at bloodied and broken heads that rose and fell, so disfigured as to be almost unrecognizable. The stands offering refreshments were just as awful. The candy apples were, in reality, human hands and feet impaled on sticks, and my stomach lurched in disgust as two young children walked by me unwittingly devouring their ungodly treats, blood smearing their lips and dribbling down their chins. The various fair patrons were not merely the unknowing perpetrators of the horrors, however, but far to the contrary. The cotton candy appeared to actually be some sort of amorphous jelly that, once taken in hand by its unknowing victims, slowly and inevitably crawled up their arms, surrounded their heads, and began to eat. I saw perhaps twenty children, their heads engulfed by the insatiable blobs, wandering aimlessly, their skin and, in some cases, parts of their skulls, simply dissolved away. The hot dogs were strange, wriggling worms that slipped themselves into the children's mouths, and with a sickening, convulsing motion, proceeded to force their way down their throats. Several bodies lying about, large open wounds still bleeding from their exploded stomachs, told me what happened next. And these were not the worst. No, that distinction belonged to the three main attractions. The general contour of the roller coaster remained the same, but now, with the illusion lifted, it became obvious that it was, in fact, a large serpentine beast, its snake-like body rising and curling about in the same path that the train had appeared to take. Its massive head lay at the entrance, and I watched as a line of waiting riders walked willingly into its open mouth. They appeared to be chatting excitedly until, with the tenth individual passing into that horrifying void, the maw clashed shut. After a couple of long moments, ten twitching lumps quieted, then began to pass through the creature like a constrictor digesting its prey. The jaws opened again, and the next ten passed inside. My petrified attention turned to the Ferris wheel, which had been revealed by the amulet as a massive spider web stretched among the trees. Again, docilely waiting children stood and waited their turn as one by one they were scooped up by giant arachnids the size of ponies, rapidly enveloped in webbing, and hung upside down upon the many spokes of the silken construct. At the center of the web rested a massive spider, easily ten times as large as the others. Periodically, the smaller creatures would retrieve one of the thrashing capsules and deposit it in front of what must have been the queen, her front legs quickly positioning the captive. A quick flash of fangs the size of railroad spikes would pierce the prey, the paralyzing venom holding it still, or to subsequently devour the hopefully unknowing victim. The haunted house was perhaps the most horrific of all. 
A stage was set before the structure, which I now saw was built entirely of human bones of all shapes and sizes. Upon the stage sat a throne similarly constructed, and upon it rested a creature of sylvan and utterly inhuman nature. Though the creature was unquestionably male-based on the enormous flaccid member lying between its legs, its features were distinctly feminine. Curled ram horns sprouted from either side of its head, its softly lined face dominated by large almond-shaped eyes as black as a moonless night. Around the stage there rose a number of sharpened stakes, perhaps ten feet tall, and affixed atop each was a child, still very much alive. The being on the throne exuded an air of almost casual boredom, and with an easy motion of indifference, extended a hand holding a golden chalice, allowing it to be filled by the blood oozing from one of the impaled children before taking the unholy beverage to its lips and drinking deeply. A wash of sickly crimson bathing its mouth, the creature wiped away the residue with the back of its hand, drying it upon the thickly matted hair sprouting from its chest. Its dark eyes flicked to me where I stood staring, and it smiled knowingly at me and winked. The idiosyncrasies of the motion, a perfect copy of the expression the animated moon had given to me earlier. I don't know how long I'd been standing there, desperately trying to move, but too terrified to even twitch, the warmth of urine running down my leg after my bladder involuntarily emptied itself, when a voice again addressed me from behind. Beautiful, isn't she? Don't you agree with me? Through an intense effort of will, I turned. The humanoid being was more than ten feet tall, and half as wide, white and hairless, its eyeless face slid open by a too-wide smile containing perhaps a hundred crooked teeth, serrated like a shark. Its long arms hung past its knees and terminated in large, knuckled hands, seemingly big enough to envelop me completely and tipped with wicked-looking claws. I saw that one of the fingers had been run through a small corpse, the body dressed in a recognizable sage-green outfit that revealed the identity of the speaker, of whom I had earlier made my acquaintance. She certainly is, Binkle. I somehow managed to reply my shaking voice, barely a whisper. The creature's smile widened even farther, seemingly pleased that I remembered it. Why is Master Trevor still not having his fun? Has he not found something that he would like to have done? No, no, Binkle, that's not it. My entire body was shaking as I faced the monster in front of me, its hand moving the little green-suited corpse in time with its words. It's just, I think my grandparents will be worried if I'm gone too long. They didn't know I'd be leaving, so I think it's best that I'd be going home now. Oh, that makes Binkle feel blue, though what you say is likely true. You've taken nothing and thus still pure. Master Trevor can leave, if he is sure. I'm sure, I squeaked. The creature named Binkle shrugged. 
In that case, Master Trevor must be going then. It said, its blind head cocked, serpentine tongue dripping with saliva licking its fish-white lips. We'll have fun when you visit Fay Hollow again. It extended its arm past me in a gesture, directing me back toward the entrance of the fairgrounds. On wooden legs I walked, rigid and barely keeping my balance, edging past the monster called Binkle, my hand never leaving the amulet in my pocket. Just as I passed through the wooden archway, I heard a voice, soft and feminine, calling out to me, "'Be seeing you, Trevor.' I kept walking, strains of the silvery music still echoing in my ears, its siren song haunting my every step. Despite everything I had seen, whatever magic that powered it was potent enough to still make a part of me want to turn back. Just as I had on my trip to reach Fay Hollow, I can't say how long or how far I traveled to get out, just that at some point the strange, eldritch twilight gave way to mundane sunshine before depositing me in a part of the forest that I recognized. I slowly lurched back to my grandparents' house, wordless and shaken, somehow making it to the front porch before collapsing from exhaustion and fear. I don't remember my grandmother finding me, though I think I remember her scream of fright when she did, and I have a faint recollection of my grandfather taking me up in his strong arms. At that point, I completely lost track of things for a little while. When I finally woke up in the hospital a week later, my parents were there, my mother and grandmother, keeping careful vigil over me. After that, it took quite a while for me to remember anything that had happened that day at Fay Hollow. I suppose that's what trauma does to you sometimes— when your mind simply isn't capable of coping with something that it had seen. I recovered slowly, but surely, and if the adults were frustrated by my inability to tell them anything about what had put me into my catatonic state, that was far outweighed by their relief that I was getting better. That was it for my grandparents' house for the summer, as my mom wanted to keep a more careful eye on me. I can't rightly say why, but it wasn't until the next year, pulling back on the shorts, I'd been wearing that fateful day, that my hand found the amulet, somehow still in the pocket where it had been left, and the memories all came rushing back to me. The hospital stay was shorter that time, only a couple of days when I woke up. The doctors thought I must have had some kind of epilepsy, though I think that was more because they couldn't figure out what else it could possibly be that was causing my fits. Nevertheless, that second shock must have been enough to inoculate me to the experience, because once I woke up again, I was able to remember everything I'd seen without going back into a coma, even when I found the amulet on my dresser where my mom had put it. I spent a lot of my free time after that just sitting in my room, studying the amulet. I took to wearing it underneath my shirt at all times. The conclusion I'd reached was that I'd rather see the scary things coming than be surprised when they got there. On weekends, I started going to the library, poring over the books in the New Age and Occult section, seeing if I could find anything that would tell me exactly what the pendant was. But I never really found much of anything that I could directly attribute to it. 
Same with the whole concept of Fay Hollow. Sure, there were plenty of myths and stories about the fairylands, or heck, even some kinds of extra-dimensional hellscapes. But for every similarity one story or another had, there were always many more things that just didn't match up. After a while, I started to question my memory of the events as they'd taken place. But every time I did, my thoughts would rush back to the amulet. I had to have found it someplace. All thoughts of what did or didn't happen went away the next summer at my grandparents' house. It had taken some convincing on my mom, but I really did want to spend time with him. Besides, despite how scared I was, there was a part of me that wanted to confirm once and for all exactly what I had seen. At first, my grandmother wouldn't let me go out alone, but eventually I got her worn down. Wandering in the woods, it didn't take me long walking, uh, before I came upon that strangely twisting path I found two years before. It wasn't in the same place as the first time, but the silvery strains of music trying to draw me down to it let me know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it was the same trail I'd found before. It was terrifying how hard it was for me to resist that cloying temptation. But holding tightly onto the pendant I wore around my neck, I managed to turn and walk home without looking back. That was the last time I voluntarily went walking in the woods. I thought I was free of Fay Hollow. For a while, I was right. The first time I realized I might not have gotten away scot-free was when I idly looked out the window of my bedroom in my parents' suburban home, only to find a neighbor's house and yard had been replaced by a thick old-growth forest with a strangely twisting, unpaved trail running through it. The barest hint of silvery music just reached my ears before I drew the blinds. After that, I had to be careful. Every once in a while, I'd be walking down the sidewalk and... If I let my thoughts wander, would find myself heading down the forest path, the unmistakable lilt of music drawing me ever onwards, the strange eldritch stars and moon shining down on me from beneath the thick tree branches above. Once I was studying in the library, went back in the stacks to grab a book, and turning to go back to my table, realized I was on the trail to the grove. On another occasion, the music spell had captured me so thoroughly that I was in sight of the wooden entryway to the fairgrounds before I managed to finally realize what was happening. I can't say the effort to turn away ever really got easier, but it certainly did get more familiar, and the time and distance I had to travel back to wherever I had left, though still unknowable, seemed to somehow shorten every time. The fear was always there, though. That continued for some long years until, abruptly, when I turned 18, it stopped altogether. I don't rightly know what it is about being a legal adult that did it, or if it would have made a difference if I had been born in a country where adulthood was considered to be at an earlier or later age. All I do know is that once I hit college, at some point that first semester, I realized I'd been walking to the student lounge daydreaming and hadn't ended up wandering on the familiar forest path. At some point, after a lot of deliberation and a lot more second-guessing, 
I finally took off the amulet. I'm in my thirties now. For a long while, I thought I wouldn't get married. But then I found a woman that I absolutely couldn't dream of living without. I thought for sure that I would never have kids. But she wants them, and there's no way I can deny her that either. But I worry. If I have a child, will the grove come for them? Will they someday find themselves walking along a strangely twisting trail through ancient woods, with a full moon shining down upon them through the creaking branches, the haunting silver music drawing them onwards to the fairgrounds at Fay Hollow? Will the strange creature, Binkle, greet them the way he did me and invite them to join in the fun? Will the terrible sylvan creature on the throne of bones grin and wink at them knowingly? I still have the amulet. I don't know how it ended up in that tree, and I don't know what providence let me stop and grab it that first day on my way to Fay Hollow. All I know is that it saved my life, maybe my very soul. It sure didn't stop the hollow from trying to get at me, but at the very least it allowed me to see the monsters for what they truly were. It will belong to my child once he or she is old enough. I'll tell them my story, although maybe I'll leave out some of the more gruesome parts, at least at first. It's a poor inheritance, to be sure, but it's also a lesson all of us must learn. Monsters exist. At some point... We all have to decide if we will open our eyes to them or stay willfully blind. They'll tempt us, sell us beautiful lies, and ask us to join in their fun. Even if we tell them no, should we go about our days simply floating, we may wake up to realize too late that they've taken us. And if we go too long asleep, we may find we have been devoured. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Faye Hollow as written by author Michael Landry and performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by following them on Twitter under the account name ShadowSwimmer77 or on Facebook. You can also take a peek at their profiles on the Creepypasta wiki 
at fandom.com or on Reddit, where they go by their full alias, Shadowswimmer77. On the wiki and Reddit, you'll find links to many of their tales in written form, including a few you'll hear in this very episode, as well as the tales in the long-running Wicker Saga, a collection of standalone short stories that together serve to tell a larger, overarching narrative. I performed a handful of the tales from the saga in the past, and I can't encourage you enough to check them out now. You won't be sorry you did. It's some of the best writing I've ever had the pleasure of performing, and I'm sure you'll get sucked into Landry's immersive universe, too. In fact, the final story of the Wicker Saga, entitled Song of Joy, is being released in irregular installments on Reddit No Sleep Now, under Michael's account there. Again, his username on Reddit is ShadowSwimmer77. Don't miss it. If you take my advice and decide to check out more of Michael's work, and you end up enjoying it as much as I did, don't forget to leave him a kind word or an upvote, or both, and let him know you heard about him here on this show. It would mean a lot to me. Up next... We've got a second tale of terror for you, courtesy once again of Mr. Landry. In it, we'll meet a gentleman that takes a shortcut, hoping to save time on a long trip. Unfortunately, he's about to find out that some routes may take us to our destination more quickly, but not necessarily the one we had in mind. Also of note, the following tale is the current pasta of the month, on Creepypasta wiki at fandom.com. So be sure to check it out and read along and join in the discussion for this wonderful tale when you have a moment and show your support directly. Without further ado, I present to you I Found a Dark and Lonely Road. I try to live my life without too many regrets. I've had highs and lows like everyone else. Sure, but I do what I can not to worry too much about what could have happened if I'd made a different choice, if I'd maybe hadn't taken the road less traveled. I figure everyone makes the best decisions they can with the information they have available to them at the time. Going through all the what-ifs is ridiculous, because the only way you would have made a different choice as if you'd had some other detail, which, of course, you didn't. Hindsight's perfect, and even then, you can never be sure exactly what the sequence of events might have looked like if you'd gone right instead of left. And yet, there is one choice I made, one road I took, that I just can't help but wonder how things might have turned out if I'd only done something different. My job has me moving around pretty regularly. I'm not going to get into what I do. That has no bearing on the story. But a couple of years ago, I was working in Philadelphia and living on the other side of the Delaware River in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I'm originally from northwestern Pennsylvania, and since this was the closest I'd be to home, since I'd moved out to college, I took the chance to go see my parents whenever I could. I knew I'd be moving again before long, and my folks are not getting any younger, 
So I tried to find a weekend every month or so to make the seven-hour trip to visit them. If I'd been thinking about it when I was looking for places to rent, I'd have probably tried to live on the west side of Philadelphia instead of in Jersey to avoid the traffic during rush hour. But by the time I realized it, the lease was signed and there wasn't much I could do. The drive to my hometown was pretty boring, honestly. I'd take the Ben Franklin Bridge across the river, head up I-476, for an hour or so, then a long slog across basically the entire expanse of Pennsylvania, on I-80, before another hour north on I-79 to Erie, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. The only variance in the drive was how long it would take me to get through Philly, because once I got on the 476 extension, I could typically predict my ETA within five or ten minutes. My second summer in Jersey, I'd taken two weeks off and planned on spending the second week in Erie. Things changed that first Wednesday, though, because a big storm blew through and knocked out power in a good part of where I was living. Dealing with 90-degree heat with no air conditioning wasn't something I particularly felt like spending the first half of my vacation doing. So after one uncomfortably sweaty night, I let my parents know I'd be heading over for a few days early. In retrospect, I should have left first thing in the morning, but because I had a couple of things to take care of before heading out, by the time I finally got on the road that Thursday, it was past lunchtime, and getting on toward mid-afternoon. For whatever reason, the traffic in Philly was particularly heavy, and by the time I finally got through town, I was a good hour behind schedule. Still, based on my normal timeline... I figured I'd still be able to make it in early enough to grab a dinner and beer with my dad and brother before cashing in for the night. Two things I hadn't taken into consideration were the number of other folks that apparently had the same idea to get out of town that I did, and the road construction that must have sprung up in the time since my last trip home. The interstate highway system is a heck of a thing. Being able to zip along at 65, 70, or in some remote places, like West Texas, even faster than that, makes cross-country automobile travel take a fraction of the hours as it would otherwise. I can't tell you the number of times my folks have reminisced about the days before the interstate, when going to see friends outside of D.C. would take almost twice as long as it does now. What's truly remarkable to me, though, is that even though the entire system of highways was built start to finish in a mere 35 years, it seems like when parts of it go under construction, they stay that way forever. Traffic was uncharacteristically heavy, but moving, and I was making decent time until I saw the first orange warning signs, letting me know that our four lanes were reducing to three, and then two. And then one. Hundreds of cones stretched down the road as far as the eye could see. And see, I certainly could, as the cars in front of me reached a complete and total standstill. It was one of the worst deadlocks I've ever been in. Seriously, I think I moved a mile in an hour. After about three hours, my stomach started grumbling. With an exit just ahead and no end to the traffic jam in sight... 
I got off and found a diner to grab some dinner. Even if traffic miraculously picked up, I still had a solid five hours of driving ahead of me. So at that point, I knew for sure it was going to be pretty late that I was getting in. After finishing eating, I got back on the road. Things looked like they were picking up for a couple of miles, but then I came back up to the end of the jam and was right back to waiting. We were moving a little bit better, I think, averaging about five miles an hour at this point, but as the sun started edging toward the horizon, I pulled out my phone and started to see if Google Maps could clue me in on any kind of workaround. It's a funny thing about human nature. Most of us don't like to sit still. Studies at airports show people would rather walk farther to baggage claim to get their luggage, even if the total time would have been less if they had just waited slightly longer at Plainside. Well, the power of the Internet appeared to be in my favor. Though I-80 still showed as a dark red band for another 50 miles or so, there was a southbound country road coming up in a few miles and a northbound a couple after that, either of which looked like they'd let me bypass the worst of the traffic. Since I'd spent the better part of the day sitting on a road, my patience was about worn out and I opted to take the southbound road, even though the app told me it would ultimately take about 30 minutes longer to get to my parents' house. I just wanted to get moving again and reasoned at this rate it might take me more than the 30-minute difference to get to the northbound route anyway. And that's the choice that will haunt me until the day I die. I made the turn off and immediately felt my mood improve. The signs alternated, limiting my speed between 35 and 40 miles an hour, but even that seemed like flying compared to the log jam I'd spent the last several hours in. The drive was interesting. The road started a little twisty, with plenty of elevation changes as it curved up and around the hills of central Pennsylvania. It took me on a general southwest diagonal, but turned and doubled back on itself enough that for the first 30 minutes or so, I got regular views of the stalled traffic on I-80. Pretty soon after that, though, just about the time that the sun was dipping down beneath a couple of hills in my rearview mirror, the road took a long, curving tack and carried me down and away out of sight of the interstate. Now, something that a lot of people don't realize about how big a state Pennsylvania is. Sure, there are plenty of bigger ones, but PA is deceptively big, and it's remote, isolated. Hell, the translation of the name means Penn's Woods, after all. The fact that you could head into the woods and walk for dozens of miles in any direction without seeing anything like another human being. It's got a decent number of big cities. Pittsburgh and Philly both have enough of a population to support major sports teams. But away from those centers of development, the Harrisburgs, the Pottsvilles, and the Scrantons, and what have you, there's a whole lot of nothing. Nothing and trees. And dark and lonely road. Such was the road I was traveling that night, winding through the twists and turns of the Appalachian foothills. I've moved around a lot, I mentioned, traveled through most of the continental states anyway. I sometimes used to wonder, when I'd be driving along a patch of asphalt, 
surrounded by only untamed wilderness, what it must have been like to construct such a road. What it had been like before man had intruded with our civilization and our machines. What had lived there? I don't wonder anymore. Not since that night when I went left instead of right. The way continued to twist back and forth, up and down. As I wound deeper into the foothills, the trees grew thicker, branches from either side of the road reaching over and almost touching, forming a natural canopy twenty feet up that blocked out much of my view of the sky and stars above. I drove with my high beams on because the idea of streetlights had never entered the minds of whoever built this road. The painted lines were old and not well cared for, and I found myself gradually straddling the faded double yellow partition, running down the middle of the two lanes to keep some distance between myself and the trees that increasingly encroached the pavement's edge. I'd never been a particularly good navigator. My parents used to say it was because I spent my childhood with my nose pushed into a book during car rides. But I personally just think it's because I'm bad at it. So it was that despite there was no possible way I could be lost, as there was no other roads that I could have possibly turned onto and gotten off track, that I found more and more frequently myself checking my phone to ensure I was still on the right path, which is how I almost ran into the other car. My mind was wandering, thinking about the fact that my signal bars had dropped and remained at zero for the last 20 minutes, and what possible implications that would mean if I should have some kind of emergency. I raised my eyes back to the road after Google Maps confirmed for probably the 20th time I was still good on my route choice, and after my brain took a beat to process what I was rapidly approaching was a vehicle stopped in the middle of the lane, and I slammed my foot on the brake. I stopped in time, but not by much, with maybe five feet separating my hood from the other car's rear bumper. My heart was pounding in my chest as adrenaline coursed through my body, but my fear quickly gave way to anger. Seriously, what the hell was this guy doing? Not only was he stopped in the middle of the road, but all his lights were off. If I hadn't had my high beams on, there's a good chance... I wouldn't have seen him before I was practically on top of him, even if I hadn't been checking my phone. I could feel my pulse beating in my vein on the side of my neck. I'm not somebody particularly quick to road rage, and after a couple quick breaths, I managed to get a hold of myself. Not wanting to outright alarm anyone that might still be in the vehicle, I shifted into reverse and backed up about 20 feet, popping my hazards on. That's when I started noticing a few odd things about the stopped car. More than just the fact that the lights were out. Of course, it was halted directly in the middle of the road, but that wasn't unreasonable since there weren't any shoulders to speak of that the driver could have moved it over to. The strange thing, though, was that all the doors were open, those on the driver's side even crossing over slightly into the oncoming lane. And on further observation, I saw an item dropped out onto the road by the rear driver's side door, something that appeared to be a child's stuffed animal. I considered my options, and after a few seconds, 
decided that I would have to go against my better judgment to just keep on my merry way and head outside to get a better idea of what was going on. I said earlier my job doesn't have anything to do with the story, which is mostly true. But before you judge my decisions too harshly, it bears mentioning that I've spent some time in the military. An obligation to help people has been drilled into me over the years, and I'd seen enough things while deployed to feel I could handle myself. And so I got out of my car but kept it running. I popped the trunk to grab the flashlight I keep there and left my headlights on so I could see what I was doing. I looked up and down the road, hoping to spy signs of other cars approaching, but no luck. Hello? I called up to the other cars. I cautiously started my approach, circling around to the left toward the middle of the road so I was able to get a look inside before I got too close. Anyone there? No answer. The beams from my headlights helped some, but there were enough shadows to still obscure the car's interior. Shining my flashlight, though, easily determined that no one was inside. I moved closer, stooping down by the rear door to pick up the fallen object off the ground. It was a child's toy, just as I had suspected. A stuffed rabbit with well-worn patches showing signs of frequent love. I frowned. If the folks traveling in the car had hitched a ride with a passerby, they would have taken the rabbit or the kid would have thrown a conniption. I shut the rear door and moved up to the front. I put my hand on the hood and found it was still warm to the touch. That meant it couldn't have been here terribly long. I slid into the driver's seat to try to figure out if there was some kind of a mechanical issue that would have forced the car to stop and was startled to find a set of keys still dangling from the ignition. Pressing the brake, I turned the key in. The engine started right up. Headlights and the dome light in the roof springing to life. Fuel, oil, temperature, battery. All the gauges looked good. Not even a check engine light. Curiouser and curiouser. Then I saw the purse in the passenger seat. I picked it up. A normal brown shoulder bag and briefly rummaged around before finding a wallet inside. Everything appeared to be intact, about $40 in cash, a couple of credit cards, gym membership, Sam's club card. The driver's license named the owner as Mary Walker, a pretty blonde that had just turned 30 the month before. A couple of pictures showed Mary in staged poses, sitting on a blanket under a tree whose leaves were turned red and yellow, captured in the thrall of autumn. A huge, bearded lumberjack of a man hugged her from behind, a small, ponytailed girl with a goofy, over-exaggerated smile on her lap. I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, a shiver running down the base of my spine. Something was very wrong with this situation. I put everything back in the purse and returned it to the seat, turned off the car and got out, shutting the driver's door behind me. I pulled my phone out of my pocket and dialed 911, holding it over my head to try to get a connection, but no luck. Cursing softly, I jammed the red end call button and moved around to the passenger side of the car. I played my flashlight around and noticed that some of the foliage at the edge of the road was bent and trampled, 
like someone had walked through it. I didn't have enough woodcraft to be able to judge how long ago. They might have passed, but even then, I couldn't imagine any scenario where why would they have gone wandering? Shining my light into the woods, the beam only extended maybe 30 feet through the trees before, well, effectively being swallowed by the greedy blackness. Looking at the flattened foliage, at the stuffed rabbit in my hand, then at that dark tree crowding maliciously, my thoughts teetered back and forth between what I should do. I made up my mind I had been trained to help people. It was hardwired into my system. There was a child somewhere in the woods. I raised my foot to take a step onto the beaten path, and that's when a white flicker of movement entered the very edge of my flashlight beam. It was Mary Walker. She was naked and walking stiffly, unnaturally, her arms swaying out of sync with the rest of her body, like a marionette manipulated by an inexperienced puppeteer. Hello? Her voice called out. Anyone there? More shapes came into view behind her, shambling along. Here, the bearded man, who must have been Mary's husband, there, her little daughter, owner of the well-loved rabbit, both naked, both moving as oddly as their wife and mother. And now I could tell there were more, many more, their forms, indistinct out of the direct light, but so many they caused the darkness to pitch and swell with their odd, staggering passage, their voices a chorus. Hello, they called. Anyone there? Parroting back the questions I'd asked only a few short minutes ago when I approached the abandoned car. I took a stumbling step back away from the woods and the approaching automatons tripping into the walker's car. Catching my balance, I involuntarily shone my light up into the pitch recesses of the branches and in doing so could just make out, barely, a sort of darkness crouched hidden in the upper limits, a void even darker than the trees. Was it my imagination, those lines of pure blackness, that extended from that concealed mass and seemed to pierce the flesh of Mary Walker and her kin and the countless other shapes moving in concert with them. Hello? Anyone there? I sprinted then, back to my car, engine mercifully still running, headlights and hazards flashing welcomingly. Hello? I shifted to reverse, miraculously keeping enough of my head to avoid running off the road as I completed a three-point turn. Anyone there? I chanced to glance in my rearview mirror. The pale form of Mary Walker stood halted just at the edge of the forest, where the trees met the road. One hand was raised, beckoning me to return, or perhaps waving goodbye, her face a mask of confused sadness. I pressed the gas and drove back the way I came. I did not look back again. The rest of the trip was a fog. At some point after I made it back to the interstate, I called my parents, let them know that I wouldn't be getting in until late. I drove on autopilot, the traffic jam, having cleared while I was off. I thought about calling 911, but didn't. What would I have told them? And to what end? There was no one left to be helped. I tried not to go through life with too many regrets, wondering about what-ifs, but this one, this choice... What if I had left earlier in the day? What if I hadn't stopped for dinner? 
Maybe I would have still gone left. Maybe I would have been there in time to help the walkers. Maybe I would have been taken by that black thing fishing in the dark. What if I'd gone right? Would I still be ignorantly going through life, unknowing there are other things out there? I try not to think about it too often, but every now and then my thoughts turn to the stuffed rabbit. It wasn't until I reached my parents' house that night that I realized I still had it clutched in my hand. I used to wonder, before men brought our roads and civilization, what was the wilderness like? What lived there? I don't wonder anymore. I can't afford to, at least if I don't want to wake up screaming. And no matter how bad the traffic, I always stick to the interstate. I hope you enjoyed I Found a Dark and Lonely Road by author Michael Landry, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author has a great assortment of additional tales ready to read for free on their Reddit profile and the Creepypasta Wicca at fandom.com, where they publish under their online moniker Shadow Swimmer 77. You can also search for Michael Landry on both Facebook and Twitter and connect with him there. And if you decide to give any of this talented author's other stories a read, again, please consider leaving him a comment or a kind word and be sure to let him know you heard about him on this program and that Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Again, thanks for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before I go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark, the final chapter in our seventh season. But don't fret. Season 8 starts next week, so stick around. I'll keep the fire burning with another 24 episodes of blood-curdling tales to ensure you insomnia never gets to take a vacation. In the meantime, Please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube... You can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. 
Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.